to uh, introduce the speaker for this morning, and it's going to be Amy McConnell. And many of you remember Amy. She was the, um, I guess we called chairperson or coordinator of the Thursday morning uh, Women in the Word for three years. Before that, she was a small group leader. And before that, I met her in a small group that we were in at Women in the Word. And I can remember sitting in the group. She's quite a bit younger than I am. But she had such insight and such wisdom and um, just depth to her answers that I was so um, taken with her right away. I, I just loved her on the spot. We became good friends. I was thrilled when she was willing to become the coordinator for Thursday Morning Women in the Word. And I had asked her long ago, would you ever want to teach the Word? You have such insight and such love for God's word and I can see your relationship with God is built on studying his word and she said um, maybe but that's kind of scary so a couple years ago you may remember she taught Habakkuk and did a wonderful job and she was willing to be a part of this series and I'm so excited that she's going to share with us today so Amy McConnell oh she's the mother of three boys and she works full-time at Covenant Classical so she's a busy lady but she has found time to study God's word to present it and there is a Dodge Durango white with the lights on outside. Is that right? White. Okay. Is this one on? Have we got it right? Thanks, Deb. That's a lovely introduction. And I can honestly say I'm so happy to be here with you. Just um, hearing your music and your praises is just sort of like I kept thinking it's perfume and it's oil and it's incense and... Honestly, in all the world, there's no place I'd rather be than here with you today. It kind of makes me want to go quit my wonderful job and come back to Thursday morning. I will be honest with you, though, as I have spent the last few weeks preparing this study, um, I can't tell you how many times I've sort of had my heart pierced and my conscience pricked as I notice words coming out of my mouth that really weren't the kind of words that I needed to be using. So I'm wondering if any of you have struggled this week with, with feeling that prick in your conscience and thinking, oh, I'll never get all the words right. And I'm here to tell you you're not alone. I'm struggling. I bet the lady beside you struggling, and we're all struggling together, but we serve a, a merciful, gracious God who gives us what we need. So I also was wondering, as I began this study, why is it that women's groups address this issue a lot? Why do we talk about controlling our mouths and uh, taking care of our words? And I've been looking for quite some time at the, uh, the studies that they do in Mighty Men, and I haven't seen one yet on controlling your mouth. <laughs> controlling your words. And so I've been trying to figure out, okay, is it really just a bigger deal for women? And um, I'm here to tell you I can speak with some authority on this. Um, I have three sons and no daughters. I grew up with two brothers and no sisters. And I work in a place where I have six bosses and they are all men. So I pretty much feel like I live in a world of men. And I can say without any doubt that we are different and we communicate very, very differently. I thought of a funny story um, when my boys were little in an elementary school and I actually missed them during the day and I'd be so eager to pick them up and I'd get in the car and I'd start all those questions. How was your day? What happened? What was the best thing that happened? And I got all those typical answers. Fine. Good. So-so. Nothing. And I was always kind of disappointed. And one day, uh, a friend in the neighborhood asked me to pick up her daughter and bring her home. 
And this is not an exaggeration. She hopped in the front seat. I hadn't even pulled away from the curb. She turned to me, I remember like it was yesterday. Today we made crepe paper flowers and I made a pink one and Susie made a red one, but it upset Nancy and there was this big fight and it made me feel... And I thought, what is this in my desert of male sparse communication? Here was an oasis, and it clearly was confirmation that we are different and we communicate differently. And I think for us, words are a bigger deal. Um, Words are a bigger issue, and perhaps it is a little more difficult for women to control our mouths. I recalled um, two great biblical instances where women are called out specifically and cautioned about their speech, and I've included it on your verse sheet. You'll look at 1 Timothy 3.11. This follows many, many verses where they're talking about the qualifications for a deacon or an elder in the church, and they're talking about all the different things this man needs to you know, have integrity in his life, and it doesn't say anything about his speech. But there's one verse about what kind of a wife he should be married to. Listen to this. Their wives should be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers or drunkards, but trustworthy in everything. Some translations don't say drunkards, they say temperate. Okay, then there's another instance in Titus. They're giving instruction for how you should train and teach the people who are in your church. Titus 2.3, teach the older women to be reverent, not slanderers, or addicted to wine. Oh my goodness, in both instances, women are singled out and cautioned in their speech, and loose lips seems to be as big a problem as alcoholism. And I just thought, I wonder how many of us think it's as big a deal when we lose control with our mouths as as it would be if we lost control with alcohol. That's a sobering thought. Can't you just hear the prayer request time? It's Sue. We need to pray for her. She's a mouthaholic. You know? Her family had an intervention and she's off to rehab. Maybe it's the same thing. I think I need a 12-step program, and some of you probably do too. So if God is giving us specific instruction as women that we need to use extra caution with our speech, then I think we need to pay extra attention to that, and we need to be careful, and we need to be mindful. I don't think that it's some terrible genetic predisposition that we just have lazy mouths that we don't control. I don't believe God created us that way at all, but I do believe he created us differently than men. I've enjoyed reading the popular books by John and Stacy Eldridge, um, Wild at Heart and Captivating. Some of you have read those. They talk about, um, there, there's a, a version for men and a version for women, and in those books they talk about we're very different and we're all created in the image of God. So they have this premise that they take all these characteristics that are uniquely feminine, maybe even stereotypically feminine, and they link those characteristics to the attributes of God. And they do the same thing with characteristics that are uniquely, stereotypically male. And they attach those to the attributes of God. And what they're trying to do in this culture that tries to make everything gender neutral and say all this super feminine is no good and it's weak and all this super masculine is no good and it's too strong. They're trying to neutralize these great characteristics that we see in God that don't need to be neutralized. So it's been a great um, 
a great book to read and understand the differences in men and women. And the key thing that I learned in it is that um, women are created to be relational. And I know that's not a big surprise to you. Um, in the creation account, God makes the earth and the sea and the animals. And after everything, he says, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then when he sees that Adam is alone, he says, it isn't good. And that's when he makes Eve. She was created to be in a relationship, and we are the same way. As women, we are relational to our core. Uh, We are filled with a desire to have meaningful relationships that are significant, even somewhat transcendent relationships. And I love thinking that this isn't some needy attribute that we need to be ashamed of or to feel inadequate in, but it's a reflection of God's beautiful character. It's a reflection of God's relational desire that he has with all of us because God is relational to his core, just like we are. And I think how many times here um, on Thursdays have we said that this whole book is God's love letter to us. It's the love story of God pursuing an intimate relationship, a transcendent relationship with each one of us. And I think that's something that we have as women that we can really rejoice in. So if we're created to be relational, I think the greatest tool we have to establish those relationships is our speech and our words. And maybe you've noticed um, we we relate differently. Men tend to uh, do things alongside each other. They golf They fish, they work together. Women do those things too, but we're talking the whole time. And we plan to get together without even doing anything beside each other, just over coffee or over lunch. Um, That's how we relate. So we use our mouths as tools, and with our mouths we encourage, and we comfort, and we teach, and we instruct. And with that same mouth, we sometimes use it as a weapon, and we criticize, and we berate, and we condemn. I don't think that God intended for us to use our mouths as weapons. I think his intent was that they would be tools and that they would reflect this beautiful relational quality that he has. And I think because of that, that's why we have so much instruction in the Bible about how we are to use this tool and to use it as a tool and not as a weapon. But it's hard, isn't it? (laughs) A lot of things are hard. I don't know if any of you share this struggle, but I've pretty much been on a diet since I was 11 years old. I've done Scarsdale and Slim Fast and Weight Watchers and even a real spiritual one called Way Down Workshop. Um, and, And the thing about any diet is it's a lot of time spent telling you which foods are the right foods. And if you just eat the right food, you're never going to struggle with weight anymore. But you know what? That's really not enough for me. Because I know which foods are the right foods, and I still want a cookie instead of broccoli. And I still want ten cookies instead of two cookies. Because it's really not enough just to know what I'm supposed to do. I really need to understand what's guiding me. What, where are my desires coming from? And I think it's the same reason that that's why it's so hard for us just to control our mouths. Um, because our mouths aren't, they're not these things that just have to be mastered and controlled. The tongue isn't really the heart of our problem. Um, the heart is the heart of our problem. And I'm going to repeat some verses that you did in your homework from your verse sheet, Proverbs 16, 23. A wise man's heart guides his mouth, and his lips promote instruction. And then we even saw Jesus speaks about this, and he says, from the overflow of the heart, or the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
So I think it's very clear and it's very convicting that we can't blame the crummy things we say, the evil things we say on just our loose lips. Um, we really need to lay the blame on our hearts because that's where everything starts. The whole sanctified Christian life is a daily process. It's every day dying to these selfish, worldly desires and instead choosing the way of God. And you know it's not something that's done once and then you put it aside and you never have to struggle with it again. It's, it's a daily process and it's a process that takes us to a transformed heart. <clears throat> Solomon says in Proverbs 4.23, Above all else, guard your hearts, for it is the wellspring of life. And another translation that I loved said, keep your heart with all diligence. And I thought, there you see in the word diligence, it's that process. It's not something that you just start and finish. It's every day keeping your heart and protecting your heart. I think Valentine's Day is coming and we see hearts and flowers, everything, and we tend to think of our American ideal about your heart is the center of emotion and sentiment. And that's really not what the Hebrew writers are talking about at all. If you were a Hebrew during this time, heart wasn't about emotion. When it talked about your heart, your heart was the center of your choice or your free will or your volition. So when a Hebrew writer saying protect your heart, what he's really saying is protect your ability to choose God. Protect your ability to choose the way of God and the will of God. And really that's wisdom, isn't it? To detect and to choose God's will. The very first week of this study, um, Deb did such a great job and she shared a definition of wisdom that I thought was great. It was from Larry Lee, a pastor and an author. And he says, wisdom is the God-given ability to perceive the true spiritual nature of a matter and to implement the will of God in that matter. And I've paraphrased it a little bit. It's to see God's truth and to implement God's will in everything. So when we apply that to our topic today, we can say a wise woman speaks God's truth and implements God's will in her relationships. Just try to imagine if this great relational quality that God has given us were always guided by speaking his truth and bringing about his will, then we would truly live as wise women. But it sounds pretty hard. How is it we're supposed to accomplish this? I'm going to repeat a few verses that you've heard several times over the last few weeks because they're worth repeating. Uh, Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Your small group leaders have been working on memorizing this verse and I'd encourage all of you to memorize it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We talked about a few weeks ago, what is the fear of God? It's knowing God's character and it's believing in God's character, believing all the good things that we know about God and that belief will direct us to a place where we absolutely delight in doing God's will. Not out of obligation, not because we ought to or should, but because we have such awe and respect for who God is, we absolutely delight in doing his will. I believe that's what has to be in your heart in order for you to really get control of your mouth. So on your outlines, a wise woman first has a heart that fears God. <clears throat> A person committed to controlling their mouths just to do the right thing or be a good person is really nothing more than just a disciplined muscle. And I haven't found anything in the Bible that says God's real concerned about our muscles. He's concerned about our hearts. Look at these verses from Proverbs. 17.3 says, The crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. 
And 21.2 says, all a man's ways seems right to him, but the Lord weighs the heart. And 28.14, blessed is the man who always fears the Lord, but he who hardens his heart falls into trouble. And then I loved at the very end of Ecclesiastes, we got a little bit more on this. 12.14 says, God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. So it really isn't enough just to control our mouths. Our hearts first have to be a place of reverence and mission to God. So we need to start with our heart. And the Bible tells us that that's the beginning of wisdom, fear of God in your heart. Well, I'm hoping after these few weeks you have a real clear sense of what Ecclesiastes, what the message of it is, that it's not all doom and gloom and life is vanity, but there's such an encouraging message to it that a life lived without God at the center is a life of vanity and a life that's meaningless and purposeless, and that's not what we're called to. And the same is true for our words. Our words, if they don't have God at the center, are meaningless vain, purposeless words. I grew up watching the Charlie Brown specials around the holidays, you know, Charlie Brown Halloween and the Great Pumpkin and all of that. And you know, if you watched those, you always saw the little kid characters, but they never drew the adults. And the adults never had voices. Do you remember that? It was always, wah, wah, wah. Wah, wah. And Charlie Brown standing there saying, yes, ma'am, yes, ma'am. That's all I can think of when I think if our words are vain and meaningless, then we're just like those noisy adults on Charlie Brown with nothing really good coming from what we say. I don't think any of us want to be that. It's not a real flattering picture of an adult, and it's not a flattering picture of a wise woman. So that's not what I want. I don't really know anyone who would choose a meaningless life. But unfortunately, if we aren't careful and we don't make some choices, that might be what we end up with. The sanctified life is purposeful. They say women use millions of words in the course of their life. I don't want those words to be vain and meaningless because that would suggest there's vanity in my heart and vanity in my relationships. So fortunately, we aren't left uh, feeling desolate about this. We've got some great instruction in Ecclesiastes about how we can alter our words and make them wise words that are full of meaning. Solomon encourages us to use caution with three different kinds of words. So if you'll open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes, we'll start in Ecclesiastes 5. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who don't know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. As a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool when there are many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow at all than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not protest to the temple messenger, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, stand in awe of God. Another translation says, therefore, fear God. So on your outlines, our words to God should be characterized by reverence, awe, and fear. The first instruction here was to approach God wisely. It says, guard your steps. Fear God. I think speaking to God should always be 
um, guided by reverent reflection. Who is it exactly we're talking to? We're talking to the God of the universe. And I love that Jesus addressed this with his disciples when they asked him, teach us how to pray. And he said this in Matthew 6, 7 through 10. When you pray, don't keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them. Your Father knows what you need before you ask. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you see something repeated there? Your name, your will, your kingdom. This focus is not on me, 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 my need, my hurt, my want. The focus of this prayer is on God and who he is and what he wants to accomplish. And I think we often forget that that's how we should approach God with our prayer. The focus needs to be on him. I tried to think of, is there someone in this world that I could meet that I would feel awe and reverence and fear about? And I thought, well, maybe the president. And then I thought, or maybe the queen of England. How how would I handle it if someone were to introduce me, take me into the castle and introduce me to the queen? I don't think I'd just start babbling. Hi, Elizabeth. Love your purse. However do you keep up with it? I wouldn't do it out of respect and reverence for her power and her position and her authority. I would be quiet. I would be overwhelmed. And if I were English, I would bow. How much more so should we approach God, the ruler of the universe? We need to respect his power and his authority and his position. And if we aren't physically bowed down when we approach him, in our hearts and in our spirits, we need to be bowed down because he's our God. He's in heaven and we are not. So approach God with awe. The second instruction was to go near to listen. And look what he says, not to offer the sacrifice of fools. It's kind of hard to think that our words to God, he might be considering foolish sacrifice. Out of respect to God, we go to him and listen. I loved what Karen had to say up there about change my heart. I should have paid her. It's a great segue into this. Our prayer life is not designed to change God. It's designed to change us. God wants intimate communication with each of us, but he doesn't want us babbling on and on about ourselves and our needs. You probably have a friend or an acquaintance who every time you're together, all they do is talk about themselves, their family, their life, their home, their jobs, and they never ask you about you. Or if they do, you know they're just asking you about you because they want to tell you a neat story about themselves. You know, we all know people like that. And I think after we've spent time with them, we don't walk away feeling like, boy, that was intimate communion with that friend. That's a great relationship. We feel like, hmm, that was pretty one-sided. Don't really feel like she knows me at all. I don't think that's the kind of relationship I want with God, where I'm just showing up with my prayers, going on and on about me all the time. Our prayers need to have a quiet, contemplative quality, a be still and know that I am God quality. So as we approach God, remember we approach God to listen as much as we do to speak. Um, Jesus later on in the Lord's Prayer, after he says, 
uh, hallowed be your name, your kingdom, your will. He very simply asked for provision, daily bread, for forgiveness and for protection from evil. It's certainly okay to take our needs to God because that's um, admitting our insufficiency and recognizing his all-sufficiency. But the focus on our prayer always needs to be on God, on who he is and how humbled we are to be in his presence. So we fear God, we approach him with awe, and we listen. And last, we're instructed not to make a hasty vow or a promise. I did a little research on this. Um, apparently, vows to God were pretty common in the, in the very early Old Testament times. And sometimes a vow was unconditional. It was just saying, God, I promise you this. But other times, a vow was conditional, meaning if you do this... I'll do that. And there are instances of honorable vows, and there are instances of dishonorable vows. One that we're all real familiar with is Hannah. Hannah desperately wanted a child and was seeking God. And Hannah prayed, "Um, Lord, if you give me a child, I'll give him back to you for service. And that was honorable, and God honored that. My kids are studying Old Testament history right now, and they've been telling me this story that's amazing about a a hasty vow. There was a warrior named Jephthah who was part of the children of Israel, and he was a successful warrior. Every battle he went out on, he won, and God was giving him favor. And for some reason, at his last battle, Jephthah made a hasty vow to God, and he prayed out, God, if you'll give me success this time, I'll sacrifice the first thing I come to when I go home. I'll sacrifice it to you. Jephthah was given success. And when he returned home, the first thing he saw was his daughter coming out of his home to greet him. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what happened, but historians believe that Jephthah probably sacrificed his daughter because he'd made a reckless vow to God. Honorable or not, the point of it is this. Failure to fulfill a vow is breaking a promise and it's sin. And sin leads to God's anger and it damages our relationships with God. Jesus tells us, don't make an oath at all. He says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And my personal opinion on this is that um, a heart that truly fears God is never going to be so bold as to think we can make a deal with him. We're not on an equal plane. He's in heaven, and we're not, and we need to know that. So the warning here is foolish speech to God may result in sin and in God's anger. The next instruction comes from Ecclesiastes 10, 12 through 13, and we're instructed to carefully choose the words we use to others. Words from a wise man's mouth are gracious, but a fool is consumed by his own lips. At the beginning, his words are folly, and at the end, they are wicked madness, and the fool multiplies words. And then look down at verse 20. Do not revile the king even in your thoughts, or curse the rich in your bedroom. Because a bird of the air may carry your words and a bird on the wing may report what you say. Didn't you love figuring out that's where that expression a little birdie told me came from? We need to be careful on your outline. Words to others should be characterized by grace. And I need to point out, we're talking about words spoken in public and words spoken in private. Characterized by grace. That means those words are for the benefit of the hearer. They're not for the benefit of the person speaking. I looked up a little bit about, um, in this context, what gracious means. And here were some great examples. It said, to be considerate, 
to show favor, to extend a favor that was unexpected or undeserved, or a generous gift from the heart. We've got a great opportunity here to compare gracious speech and foolish speech. Gracious speech is always focused on the benefit of the hearer, and foolish speech is selfishly focused on the speaker. And the words consumed by his own lips there would certainly suggest that foolish speech leads to self-destruction. Solomon gives us a lot more words on gracious speech in Proverbs. If you'll look at your verse sheets, look at Proverbs 25:11. A word aptly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. And then Proverbs 12:18, reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. If we're defining wise speech as speaking God's truth to bring about God's will, I think we can accept that God's will is always the edification of the hearer. I looked up edification because it's one of those words we use a lot, and I wanted to make sure I really knew what it meant. And it said to um, improve the moral character of a person, to improve the spiritual character of a person. And that's a pretty high calling, that our words should be words that improve the character of the person who's listening. I had you um, look in some New Testament verses. You probably felt like you were doing a sword drill or something, but I had you flip over to James. We have great wisdom literature in the Old Testament, and I think James is kind of New Testament version of wisdom literature, where he is really teaching the new church um, how to have practical holiness, how to live a life that shows your faith and your love. Um, And this really is the sanctified life that we've talked about earlier. So I'm going to read to you what James has to say about wisdom. James 3, 12 through 17. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. What a great description of what godly wisdom looks like and what godly wisdom sounds like. It's pure and it's peace-loving and it's full of good fruit. We need to test our words. Do they sound spiritually wise? I recently had an experience with, um, I spent about an hour and a half with a reporter who was writing a story on the place where I work. And I can't tell you how careful you are when you're speaking to someone knowing that everything you say could end up on a page with quotation marks around it and your name. And I couldn't help but think how exhausting that was when it was over. And what if we lived our entire day like that, carefully considering every word we said? Is it spiritually wise? Does it benefit the person who hears it? If we speak that way, then gracious speech results in eternal good and earthly blessing for the hearer. And I have to remind you that warning's not just for the things that we say in public. I think we've all kind of been tempted. We've had those conversations where somebody said, it's okay, this is a safe place. You can be really honest about your feelings here. You know what? There's no safe place for foolish speech. What you say could be repeated and could wound someone. But more importantly than that, God hears it. 
God knows the heart that produced it. God doesn't want it. He doesn't want us to be using foolish speech publicly or privately or even just thinking it in our hearts. So let your words and let your thoughts be gracious. The last type of word that Solomon cautioned us about in Ecclesiastes 7.21, we're to be careful with the words that we listen to. Do not pay attention to every word that people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. For you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. I honestly think that many, many of us rely too heavily on advice and wisdom from other people. I don't know if this is this relational aspect of us that just goes a little bit too far, but I think as women, we tend to really need to tell our story and ask people, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? I call this polling. You know, we call every friend and we keep track of this one said I should do this and this one said I should do that. Of course, seeking wise counsel is important and there's a time and a place for that. But sometimes I think we're just wanting other people to confirm what we've already decided to do. Other times, I think we're just not willing to take the time to go to God and really um, seek his word and ask for his wisdom. So we go to everybody else and try and figure out what it is that God would want us to do. But we really need to use wisdom in the words that we listen to because just like Solomon said, um, we are sinful with our words. We can't listen to sinful words. We certainly can't make decisions based on sinful words. So be careful with the words you listen to. On your outline, the words we listen to should be characterized by spiritual wisdom. And why don't you draw a line under spiritual? Put a box around it or do something to make it bold. On your verse sheet, 1 Corinthians 2.15 says, He who is spiritual judges all things. As believers, God has given us the gift of the Spirit of God inside us so that we can recognize spiritual truth and recognize spiritual things. God gives us this gift with the expectation that we're going to use it. We need to test what we hear. We don't need to accept everything we hear as truth or as wisdom. We need to test it and know that it's spiritually wise. And you know what spiritual wisdom looks like and sounds like because James told us. Is it God's truth? Does it bring about God's will? An interesting thing about um, wisdom and how to recognize it, um, in this study, I realized God doesn't ever talk about something being a little bit wise or sort of wise or becoming wise. There aren't increments of wisdom. Something is either wise or it's foolish, and there's really not anything in between. And I think the same thing is true with God's truth. It's either God's truth or it's not. And there isn't anything in the middle. We've got to be careful not to listen to things that aren't God's truth. Solomon gives us this warning in Ecclesiastes 12, 11 through 12. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. I have a a sweet friend who has the gift of evangelism, and like so many people with that gift, she loves people. She'll stop and make friends and talk to people anywhere. She made friends with a young man who worked at her dry cleaners, and of course, she very quickly got him talking about his faith. She was very disturbed to learn that he had a strange belief system. He had combined a lot of biblical Christian ideas with some Eastern religions, with some mysticism, and with a lot of New Age philosophies, and he put them 
them all together in this crazy package. And week after week, she'd talk to him about this. And week after week, he'd do this thing to her. He'd, um, he'd talk about his beliefs, and he'd say, well, you know, that comes from Malachi 17.12 or Obadiah 99.199. And he'd pull out these scriptural references that weren't John 3.16. They weren't things that you and I know and can recall from memory, unless perhaps we're Karen Miles. <laughs> Um, and so each week, as he'd do that to her, she'd say, I'm sorry, I don't recall that verse. What does it say? And he would say, oh, I'm not going to tell you. You really should go home and look it up. Week after week, he's doing this to her, and he's talking about all these crazy ideas, and she's getting a little irritated with him. Well, finally, she gets to a week where he's talking about his ideas about eternity and the end of the world, and he's, ta- he's quoting Revelation just over and over and over again and adding all this crazy stuff to it about um, reincarnation and multiple lives. And she thought, I got him. And she said, so you know Revelation, don't you? And she said, what do you think about the last four verses? And he said, well, I don't know them from memory. What do they say? And she said, no, I'm not going to tell you. You really should go home and read them yourself. Well, I didn't know them from memory, so I'm going to read them to you and know that this is the very last instruction after God gives his prophetic message. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city described in this book. Well, that's clearly God's instruction that he's given his prophetic message. And that's it. And we don't add to it and we don't take away from it. That's not just for revelation. This whole book is God's truth. And we don't need to add to it and we don't need to take away from it. But in the world we live in, there's a lot of advice out there. We have Dr. Phil, and we have Dr. Lara, and we have Oprah, and we have people on talk radio acting like an authority about everything. Um, But what they say is not always spiritually wise. Worldly wisdom is out there too. And worldly wisdom is tricky because it sounds practical. And sometimes it even sounds kind of right by worldly standards. Maybe you've heard some of these things. What really matters is what you think you should do in your heart. What really matters is, does it seem wrong to you? Or what about this one? This time is all about me. I'm making choices that are good for me. Or the famous one, if it feels right, do it. It must be good. Just follow your heart. We've all heard those things. And in the right circumstance, they might seem practical. They might seem right. But the reality is there's no spiritual truth in any of that. That's worldly wisdom. And unfortunately, we've all been tempted to believe worldly wisdom. It's subtle and it's seductive. And God says it's dangerous. On your verse sheet, Proverbs 14:12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. Worldly wisdom seems right, but it isn't. And here's how you test it. Worldly wisdom is always focused on personal ambition and personal promotion. It isn't focused on the benefit of someone else. It isn't focused on God's truth or bringing about God's will. In James, it says, look for bitter envy. Look for selfish ambition. Look for things that create disorder. And he says it's worldly, it's sensual, and it's demonic. Those are the things that are indicators of worldly wisdom, not spiritual wisdom, and we need to be careful not to listen to those things. Psalm 1-1 
It says, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. As believers, we are called to live lives that are wise, and we are equipped by God to live lives that are wise. But to do that, we must be discerning. We have to test the words that we pray, the words that we say, and especially the words that we listen to. A wise woman will choose words that reflect God's truth and bring about God's will. Let's pray. Holy God, we come to you with hearts that are bowed down before you, and we thank you for your goodness and for your greatness, and we thank you for the gift of your word that gives us direction, and we thank you for the gift of your wisdom that's available to us when we ask. We thank you that it protects us and that it guides us, and our prayer is that we will be covered with your wisdom and that the words that we say Uh, will be wise words and will benefit others. We pray that the words of our mouth and the attitudes in our heart will be words and attitudes that are pleasing to you. And we pray that this will be for your glory, Lord, not ours. In Jesus' name, amen.